Every night in the, these meetings in here uh, this week, we're looking at one of five very important themes, meaning, satisfaction, freedom tonight, identity, and uh, hope. And these are five things that human beings need, they can't live without. And uh, my case to you every night is that Christianity not only uh, explains these needs very well, why we have them, but also supplies these needs with arguably, at least I'm arguing, uh, unparalleled resources. Christianity makes some tremendously powerful offers. And tonight, we're looking at freedom. And whereas, when I go through that list, meaning and satisfaction and freedom and things like that, I hope I'm not doing that. Um, uh, when you get to freedom, even though it looks similar to the others, it's not quite, because though in some ways, all five of these things are, are perennial human needs, freedom in particular is the baseline cultural narrative of our Western culture. Uh, it's always been important, but now it's ultimately important. It's essentially, some people have said, the only moral imperative we have left, freedom. And that freedom is now seen almost as an absolute value. Uh, 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 here's a couple of expressions of it. It's just people talk about it all the time. They use this baseline cultural narrative without thinking in those terms. But some years ago, I just saw this recently, uh, 1994, there was a, a Woody Allen movie called Bullets Over Broadway. It became a Broadway um, musical too. And in it, one of the characters, who's played by Rob Reiner, a, a very well-known um, actor and uh, writer, his character says this, guilt is petty bourgeois crap. An artist creates his own moral universe. An artist creates his own moral universe. Now, a little more recently, and I, I guess a little bit less, uh, you know, a, a little bit more accessibly, recently there was a, a Walt Disney movie called Frozen. And um, there's a character in there, Elsa. And if any of you know any five-year-old to 10-year-old girls, little girls, you know what I'm about to tell you. There's a very famous uh, song in which she says this at one point. Elsa says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. You're very lucky I didn't break into song on that <laughs> because I've heard it so often. But it's the same thing as Rob Reiner saying. This is, this is, the, this is the baseline cultural narrative. Uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I've got to break through to be free. The arch enemy, it seems, of that kind of freedom is Christianity. In our Western culture, if that's the cultural narrative, Christianity is seen as almost the arch enemy of freedom. Uh, Mark Lilla, who teaches uh, humanities at uh, Columbia University, a couple of years ago wrote in the New York Times Magazine an interesting essay about Billy Graham. And he, uh, he, he, he talked to a man who was a Wharton Business School graduate, uh, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton Business School, very prestigious school, and his shock discovered that he had gone forward at a Billy Graham crusade and been born again. And he talked to him a little bit about this, uh, and he was shocked partly because when he was a teenager, he had flirted with what he called born-again Christianity. But he says, when, I, when he actually sat down, evidently years ago, and looked at the place in the Bible, John chapter 3, where um, Nicodemus, uh, a religious leader, and Jesus have a conversation where Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is what Mark Lilla says about that chapter. He says, Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus that he must recognize his own insufficiency, 
that he will have to turn his back on autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. That seems like a radical challenge to our freedom, and it is. And then he went on to say that's the reason why he just couldn't be a born-again Christian, because it was a radical challenge to our freedom. So the question is, is a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, is that a radical challenge to our freedom? Does that mean that you really can't be free if you're a Christian? And here's the answer. I'm thinking about another movie. This is the last of my movie references, I promise. Uh, Brendan Gleeson in a new great movie called Calvary. There's a place where he's a, he's a Catholic priest uh, going into the ministry late in life. He has a daughter who had recently failed in her suicide attempt. And he's talking to her, and she looks at him and says, my life is my own. He said another expression of the cultural narrative of freedom. My life is my own. I belong to myself. It belongs to nobody else. And he looks at her and he says, true. False. And he wasn't changing his mind. What he was saying is, true to a degree, but ultimately false. And see, the, he's right when he talks about the, the, the cultural narrative of freedom is actually true but largely false. And the question, does, uh, does a relationship with Jesus Christ impede your freedom? And the answer, again, is true, but ultimately false. Let me explain. Let me read you a short passage again, as I usually do at night, uh, from John chapter 8. I'm going to read verses uh, just uh, 31, I think, 31 to 37. Uh, I will only be referring to it, not unpacking it. Uh, but it's about freedom. Let me read it to you and, and uh, talk about three points that I think we can learn from the passage. To the Jews who had believed to him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. An they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Now, here's three things I'd just like to try out on you the complexity of freedom, the anatomy of unfreedom or slavery. <laughs> and how the tr Jesus can set you free. Did I hit all three? Don't remember the complexity of freedom, the anatomy of unfreedom or slavery, and how Jesus can set you free. Number one, the complexity of freedom. Uh, when, when Jesus' uh, interrogators say, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone, a lot of people wonder what in the world they're talking about. Surely they knew they'd been slaves in Egypt, um, uh, that, that the Hebrews had been slaves in Babylon, essentially. In fact, in some ways they were slaves now. They, uh, they certainly weren't politically free. 
because they were under the boot of Rome. But uh, on the other hand, they had asserted themselves. They had never lost their cultural identity. There's a sense in which that even in those situations, they had asserted themselves. And in that sense, as far back in history as these folks are, that is very much what I think the baseline cultural narrative of our culture is too. And that is, freedom is the absence of all constraint. Freedom is the absence of all restraint. So here's a, here's a helium balloon, and it comes up to here, but it's, it, it, it would go up if I could get rid of the barrier, so I remove the barrier, and it goes as far as it can. And our modern understanding of freedom is freedom is self-assertion, freedom is uh, having no restraints, so I do what I can do and I do what I want to do, and there's no limits on it. That's freedom. I'm here to start by saying right away that that is an unworkable definition because freedom is actually not like that at all. It's an impossibility. It is something that is extraordinarily, uh, it, it's the slogan. I mean, you see, I've got to test the limits and break through, got to see what I can do, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Uh, Atul Gawanda, who's, I've quoted him before, he's an Indian uh, American uh, doctor uh, who's written a book recently called uh, Being Mortal, and he says, there are different concepts of autonomy. One is autonomy as free action, living completely independently, free of coercion and limitation. This kind of freedom is a common battle cry in our culture, but that is a fantasy. Our lives are inherently dependent on others and subject to forces and circumstances beyond our control. Just as safety is an empty and even self-defeating goal to have or live for, so ultimately is autonomy. Now, why? Why would I say that the basic idea that freedom means my will be done? Freedom means I am not constrained. I can choose what I want to do and I want to live in the way I want to live. I create my own moral universe. What's wrong with that? I say it's unworkable. In fact, that's not how freedom works at all. A quick example, right away. Uh, here's, a, here's a man in his 60s, let's say. And uh, he likes to eat what he wants to eat. And it's not a, it's not a, to say he likes to eat what he wants to eat, it's not a superficial desire. Uh, eating with friends, eating certain kinds of food, uh, very satisfying. Uh, a very important part of his uh, daily joy and delight. But a doctor comes along and says, unless you severely restrict what you're going to eat, uh, from now on, uh, you are going to have uh, heart trouble, you're going to have a heart attack, you're going to end up in bed, or you're going to end up uh, uh, having a, a rather shorter life. And now immediately we see, the question is, what is, the free, what is freedom for that man in that context? You say, freedom is being free to do what you want. Well, here's the problem. He wants to live, he wants to be in good health, and he wants to eat these foods, which means his desires contradict. One of the main problems with defining freedom is doing what you want to do, doing what you can do, no limitations, is your desires contradict. And deep desires contradict. And strong desires contradict. And almost immediately you begin to see this. You have to choose between desires. Another way to put it is, which of the desires you have are the liberating desires and which ones are the enslaving desires? Which ones are the desires where maybe superficially and, and uh, uh, initially seem to bring you joy but will end up putting you in bed? Do you want the freedom of health? See, there's freedoms. There's not just freedom. 
There's the freedom of health. There's the freedom of, uh, actually, uh, you might say, uh, you know, the pleasure of eating food. And what you're going to have to decide, I think you should, of course, is real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to, to strategically gain other freedoms. That's how freedom really works. Uh, how are you going to look at, look at yourselves? How are you going to get the freedom of a great job or professional knowledge of a field? Every day at a place like Oxford, you are saying no to all sorts of uh, other kinds of desires. You can't, you, you, you're not running your own life anymore. You're under constraint. You're, and you're choosing those constraints. Why? Because the reality is you'll never get to musical, the freedom of musical skill, the freedom of professional um, uh, skill. You'll never get to the freedom of health unless you say no to all sorts of things. And so actually, freedom is not the absence of constraints. It's finding the liberating constraints. It's not the, fr freedom is not being able to do what you want. It's, it's basically sifting through your desires and saying which of these desires are the liberating desires. And freedom isn't a thing. There's lots of freedoms and you have to decide which are the strategic ones. Because you only gain strategic freedoms by strategically losing other ones. And that's just the way it works. Now you might say, no, 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 I, I, I hear what you're saying. But nevertheless, these are restraints that I have chosen. And therefore, I am really free. No, you haven't chosen them. You've come up against reality. Physical reality is that if you live any way you want, you're going to die quickly. If you, way, if you live any way you want, there's a physical reality, and you actually have to conform to that reality. And if you don't conform to your physical design, you will lose freedom. You won't be gaining freedom. I mean, initially, you might be gaining freedom, but it would be very, very short-lived. And so once we understand that, and you begin to see freedom isn't an absolute, it's not, it's finding the liberating desires, it's finding the right constraints, the constraints that fit in with reality. You say, well, of course, that's true of physical reality. Okay, no, not only that, it's also true of metaphysical reality. What do I mean? However you define freedom, and I don't think it's, I think it's way too simplistic and reductionistic to just define it as uh, self-assertion, my will be done, the absence of restraints, get rid of the limits, no right and wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. The problem with that, among other things, is a person who actually enters into that definition and really embraces that will never know the freedom of being in a loving relationship. Here's what you, however you define freedom, there's nothing like being in a love relationship. Of various sorts, not just romantic love, but in a strong love relationship. There's nothing more freeing. There's nothing more liberating. There's nothing that makes you feel more like whatever we mean by the word freedom. But the minute you get into a love relationship, and the deeper you get into it, the more intimate it gets, the more wonderful it gets, the more you have to give up your independence. You didn't notice that? Let's just say you start into a relationship. You know, it's a kind of a relationship. You already, you can't just decide when to leave town for the weekend. You have to check. You've already lost your independence. And if you don't check, you know, you could say, hey, I'm leaving town next weekend. And the person you're entering into the relationship says, well, that wouldn't be very convenient for me. I need, well, sorry, I, I got to be free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I got to break through. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, look, hey, I want to have a relationship, but I want to be able to leave town when I want to leave town. And the other person's saying, I think we're breaking up. 
Because basically, when you, to, get, to know the freedom of love, not one person, see if one person says this and not both people, you'll never know the freedom of love. But if both people say to each other this, I will adjust for you, I will change for you, I will give up my freedom for you, I will serve you even if it means a sacrifice for me. If one person says that in a relationship, so one person's doing all the sacrifice and the other person's doing all the receiving and the ordering around, then you have an exploitive, it's, you have exploitation. But on the other hand, if both people are saying, I will change for you, I will adjust for you, I will give up my freedom for you, I will sacrifice for you. If both people are doing that and you're losing freedom, as it were, in fact, you're losing an enormous amount of freedom, not just you can't go to town, that's how you find love. One of the most striking things about the inability of the modern cultural narrative, the idea of absolute freedom, you create your own moral universe, uh, the, the limitations of it came through in a, in a very old now, many years old, um, interview that I read some years ago. Uh, it was actually uh, translated for me because my French is non-existent. But uh, in Le Monde magazine, there was an interview with uh, Francois Sagan, who was, uh, as you know, a novelist. And at one point, the interviewer was asking her a question and said, then you have had the freedom you wanted in life. Have you had the freedom you wanted in life? And Sagan says, yes. Now, I was obviously less free when I was in love with someone, but fortunately, one's not in love all the time. Apart from that, I'm free. And what she was saying was, if you want to have freedom from self-denial, if you want to have freedom from self-donation, if, if you do not want to give up your independence, and you can have an affair, which is wonderful, you know, it's a have an affair, but you don't lose your independence. And that's why she says, even when she was having an affair, even that was temporary, she said, you know, I wasn't free, of course. So you have to dip into love every so often to kind of recharge your batteries, but don't give up your freedom. But wait a minute. Where is the environment in which you feel the most free? Isn't it in a, a love relationship where two people have not, they're not exploiting each other, but they're giving themselves away to each other instead of self-assertion? No, self-giving. And so you see the limitations. It's a, it, it is a, it's a remarkable limitation. And that's the reason why now we're, right now, we're up to the doorstep of my second point. And here's why, I, and the, the second point is not gonna be an easy one for modern people to hear. I just showed you the complexity of freedom. I just showed you, I hope, that uh, if, you, if you've heard these slogans, that to be free means you decide what is right or wrong for you, you live as you want to live, no one can tell you what is right or wrong for you, you, uh, you, you create your own moral universe. If you believe that, it's unworkable, it doesn't work even on a daily basis, it's not, it's not the way your life is working, it's a, it's a completely uh, overblown and absolutized understanding of freedom, political freedom, the freedom of people for self-government and self-rule, all sorts of ways freedom is great, but when you turn it into an absolute, the only moral imperative, it just doesn't work. And if you see that, and also if you see that essentially uh, freedom doesn't, absolute freedom doesn't work inside love relationships, now you're actually on the verge, on the doorstep of understanding what Jesus says, which you're gonna roll your eyes at, and that is this. The deepest sin, slavery is being a slave to sin. Remember what he said? They said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be, need to be freed? 
And Jesus says, I'm not talking about political freedom. I'm not talking about freedom up there. You can be politically free in every way and still be a slave to sin, which is the ultimate slavery. Now, modern people roll their eyes, but I think you're on the verge of understanding what he's saying. Let me show you what Jesus Christ means when he says that the ultimate slavery is sin. What's that mean? Well, for a moment, think about this. If there's a God. If there's a God, then there's a metaphysical reality a lot like your physical reality. You can't just live any old way. You can't just eat anything. You can't just live any way. If you want to have health, you have to honor your physical design. You have to honor your physical uh, thereness your physical givens. And I've shown you that even in love, which is not physical, it's a metaphysical, it's a relational, even there, the modern understanding of freedom doesn't work. Let's push it a little bit. What if there is a God? So God has moral directives. Let me give you one example of this. Uh, first of all, an illustration. Here's a car. Beautiful car, nothing wrong with a car. But it's moving down the road and you look inside and you see there's a five-year-old driving it. What will happen? It won't be good. Disintegration of some sort. The car's going to run into somebody, kill somebody, run into a, uh, a tree, destroy a fence. Something bad will happen. Why? Because though it's a good car, it's not designed to be driven by a five-year-old. Not at all. The Bible essentially says, when God says, here's the commandments, here's the moral directives, don't lie, don't be selfish, uh, uh, don't bear false witness, or, I'll give you one just to show you, basically God's moral directives come from your designer, and if God's moral directives come from your designer, then to break them is not, those things aren't busy work. To break them is to, is to actually violate your own nature and to lose freedom, just like a person who's eating the wrong foods and who ends up in a hospital. So, for example, the Bible says don't, don't bear a grudge. You're made in the image of God, who's a forgiver. Therefore, you must forgive. It's a directive. You must forgive. And if you don't forgive, what's going to happen? Uh, if, you, if, if you don't forgive, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Like so many. If you refuse to, um, uh, to forgive, in the, in the short run, it's going to feel pretty good. It's, it feels good to hate somebody who's wronged you. It feels very, very good to uh, even pay back the person who's wronged you. But in the long run, what's going to happen? Disintegration. It, it, it can hurt your body to be angry. It can certainly hurt your, all your relationships. If you stay angry at an individual, other people like that individual, you won't trust. It'll start to distort your relationships. It certainly will distort your relationship with the person. It'll distort your relationships with other people like that person. It will actually, in many ways, make it harder for you to trust people. If you stay angry, it'll destroy your commitment apparatus. It'll distort your whole life. It could hurt your body. Why? Because when you are disobeying a moral directive from God, you're actually going against the grain of your own, your own nature, going against the grain of the universe. You're like a five-year-old trying to drive a car, and it will not work. And so when Jesus actually talks about you're a slave to sin, that's one of the things it means that when you actually say, I'm no right, no wrong, no rules for me, if there's a God, if there are, if there is some moral directives and you break those moral directives, then what you're doing is you're, you're enslaved. The enslavement of someone who's eating the wrong things, the enslavement of someone who's not forgiving, 
all the sort of things, all the breakdowns, all the disintegration. That's one aspect of what it means to say sin is slavery. But here's the other one. Here's the one that will probably, uh, it, it will probably be a little more poignant for most of you. Uh, Jesus actually says something pretty interesting here. He says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Fascinating image. You know Downton Abbey, right? Sure you know Downton Abbey. Everybody lives in, ho in the home. The, inside the home, under the, uh, the leadership of the head of the estate, there's all sorts of people. There's sons and daughters, there's family, and there's all these servants. They all live downstairs. They all live there. And even if you have, if you're a servant, though, that's what he's saying, if you're a servant in that household, you might have a great relationship with the head of the estate, but you're, he, he's still your boss. He's not your father. And that means you might be very familiar. They may even talk about we're just a, we're just a family here, but you're only, on good, uh, you're, you're only on good terms with the boss as long as you're doing your duty. And if you're not doing your duty, you're out of there. That's why he says, you know, the son has, a slave has no permanent place in the family. However, a son does. And here's what I can just tell you as a parent, and I think a lot of you can intuit this whether you're parents or not. Uh, if I'm a boss, as nice as I be with my employees, if they don't do their job, they're going to have to leave somehow. If they don't do their job, they're going to have to leave somehow. But what happens if you have children and some of them are not doing their jobs? What's really weird about a parent's heart is sometimes if you, have, if you have five children, one of them is starting to act up in very bad ways. If anything, your heart is more engaged to the one <laughs> that's, that's messing up. And Jesus says, you are a slave as long as God is a boss to you. I can make God into a father. Now, why would he say anyone who thinks of God as a boss is a slave? Here's the reason why, two reasons. Number one, Let's just say you're a religious person, and you say, well, I'm going to do, do good. I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to try to live like Jesus. I'm going to do all these things. Then God has to answer my prayers. Then God has to give me a better life because I'm doing all these things. You're like a servant. You might be very religious, but God's like a boss. Why are you doing these things, to get into heaven or to... Uh, uh, to, to uh, get him to answer your prayers or to feel like a righteous person. And let me tell you, you are a slave. That's slavish. You're not, you're not obeying all the rules out of love. You're obeying all the rules to get something. They'll be crushing. You'll be stifling yourself all the time, things that you'd really like to have, and then feeling like, well, you know, I'm doing all these things. Why isn't God blessing me in more ways? You'll be self-righteous. You'll look down at people who don't, aren't living the right way, and you'll look down on them to, to bolster your sense of self-righteousness, which is always, it's never what it should be, because you're never sure you're living a good enough life, never living a good enough life. You're a slave. Even though you're religious, even though you might believe everything in the Bible, you're a slave, because God's a boss, not a father. However, let's just say you are like Rob Reiner or like Elsa or whatever, and you said, I'm not religious at all, not in the slightest and I'm not going to have, I'm not going to, it, it, it makes me, my skin crawl to even hear you talking about moral directives and things like that. You know, I believe I have to decide what is right, right or wrong for me. I choose what I'm going to live for. Fine. You're actually assuming that God is a boss if he exists. And therefore, you're actually a slave too. How so? You've got to live for something, do you not? You have to live for something. 
here's what David Foster Wallace, you know, the great postmodern, the late great postmodern uh, novelist, said in one of his, uh, a very famous college commencement speech he gave near the end of his life. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally take you away. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is their unconscious, their default settings. I hope you heard that. By the way, he's not writing as a Christian at all. Here's what he's saying. You've got to live for something, right? You have to. Whatever that is, is your master. You wouldn't call it worship, but if it's the main thing that gives you significance, if it's the main thing that gives you security, the main thing that gives you hope, then if anything goes wrong with it, you're, you're going to melt down. If anything gets in the way of it, you're going to be furious. If you fail in some way, you're going to beat yourself up. See, he says, if you're living for money and things, if that's where you get meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Body and beauty, you'll, never be, you'll always feel ugly. Scholarship, you'll always feel stupid like a fraud, an imposter. But here's the problem. If you don't live for God, then you're going to live for something else as a God. And whatever that God is will be your master. You don't belong to yourself. And now we're at the very verge of what Jesus says and what he can do. Here's what Jesus Christ essentially says. Um, I'm the only Lord and Master that if you get me will satisfy you, and if you fail me, I'll forgive you. Your career can't die for your sins. See, if you're living for your career and you fail it in some way, it will destroy you forever. It's, it's a thing. It's not a person. Your career can't forgive you. If you're living for whatever you're living for, David Foster Wallace is right. If you don't believe in God, you're going to make something else into a God. And whatever that is, you'll be a slave to it. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to that. And Jesus says, I'm the only Lord and I'm the only master who, if you get me, I'll satisfy you. But if you don't, that's last night's talk. But he also says, but if you fail me, I can forgive you. And see, at the very, very end, he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me. The cross is never far from Jesus' mind because this is the way he liberates us. How so? Do you remember what I said in the beginning, that there is nothing greater than a love relationship? And clearly, in some ways, if you were here last night, you see the links to last night. What we're being told here, uh, uh, St. Augustine, I'll, I'll, I'll just use this illustration. In book chapter 2 of St. Augustine's Confessions, he remembers a, a time when he was 16 years old where a group of his friends and he broke into a pear orchard and stole some pears. And afterwards, many years later, he reflected and he said, why did I steal the pears? Especially considering two things. One is, I didn't like pears. And two is, I wasn't hungry. And he says, I know why I stole the pears, because I was told I mustn't go in there. 
And as soon as it was forbidden, I wanted it. And here's what he says. He says, deep inside me and deep inside all of our hearts, there is something that says, no one tells me what to do. And that, what Martin Luther calls incurvitus say, that we're, we're, we're curved in on ourselves. Uh, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to assert our wills. We want to say, my will be done. No one else's will be done. That is one of the main reasons why there's misery in the world today. And our baseline cultural narrative does not do anything except accentuate that. And Augustine says, what I needed was to have my heart captured by something else. I realized that uh, I, because I was living for myself, I had to say, well, I'll live for learning. I'll live for rhetoric is what he was, by the way. He was a highly, highly paid uh, uh, professor of rhetoric. I'll do this, I'll do that. And it didn't, didn't satisfy, of course. And he always was not liberated. He was mastered by these things. What would free him, finally, to love God, who, uh, more than anything else, again, there's the links to last night, but here's how it happens. Remember I said that a love relationship has to be two ways. If you go into it and you say, I will adjust for you, I will uh, give up my freedom for you, I will change for you, I will sacrifice for you, if one person does it and the other person does not, that's exploitation. How would you get into a love relationship with God? Wouldn't you say, well, that would have to be exploitation because God has got all the power. God wouldn't change. I have to do all the submitting. I have to do all the repenting. I have to do all the change. That sounds like exploitation. Well, in other religions, maybe, but not in Christianity because you know when Jesus Christ says, here, I'll set you free because I'm going to die? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And by coming to earth in the incarnation, being born as a human being, and by going to the cross and dying for our sins, which we talked about before and, and now, if we really are, belong to God and we are exerting our own will, then there's a debt that we owe to him. God comes and pays the debt. Jesus Christ goes to the cross. That objectively breaks down the barrier between me and God, but subjectively too. The cross reminds me of something, that on the cross, God is actually saying, and he, this is the only God of any religion that says this, I will adjust to you. I will change for you, incarnation atonement. I will give up my freedom. He's been nailed to the cross. That's giving up your freedom. How's that for giving up your freedom? See, he's the only God that says, I will give up my freedom for you. I will sacrifice for you. And when you sacrifice for him, you're entering into that love relationship which will finally, finally free you. The only way to be liberated is to do strategic freedom transfer. You give up some freedoms to get the more liberating freedom. You have to recognize reality and you have to make sure that you restrain yourself uh, along the lines of, of the grain of the universe. But don't you see at least, I mean, a lot, of this, a lot of this abstract, but don't you see unless you actually are serving, you are serving something. What could be better than this one? What could be better than this? This is the liberation that you really need.